0: listening to The Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to theoretical physicist Sean Carroll.
1: We're building quantum computers, we're doing physics at the nanoscale, we're pushing things around at the level where quantum mechanics really becomes relevant.
0: Sean shared his insights into the many worlds' interpretation of quantum mechanics, how theoretical physics informs our understanding of reality, and what the human mind can comprehend about the nature of the universe. This episode was recorded in person before the outbreak of coronavirus, while Sean was in London promoting his book, Something Deeply Hidden. You can view the full video version of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Perhaps you can understand quantum mechanics. At least that's what it feels like when you read this book. It feels like suddenly, maybe, possibly, you can start to begin to understand this weird thing called quantum mechanics. And I want to just dive straight in and ask probably the question you've been asked the most on this book tour, but in what way is quantum mechanics the deepest and most comprehensive view of reality? It's, it's the
1: right question to ask. And the, the embarrassing thing is that physicists themselves know that they don't understand quantum mechanics, right? So uh, the, the best way to conceptualize it is before quantum mechanics, there was classical mechanics. Isaac Newton came down from the mountain and said, this is how the world works. It's made of stuff. You can tell me where the stuff is, how fast it's moving, and that's all you need to know. The laws of physics do the rest. And there was never any talk about what you could measure or anything like that. You measure whatever you want. That's how classical mechanics works. And so when quantum mechanics comes along in the early 20th century, suddenly it seems that physical systems, mostly little tiny subatomic systems like an individual particle or maybe an atom, behave differently when you're looking at them and when you're not looking at them. Right? In particular, they seem like a wave when you're not looking at them, but then you measure an electron and it looks to you like a particle. This is completely new. There's, there's no analog of this. There's no metaphor or simile that does justice to the, the weirdness of this feature. And that's what we're still trying to struggle with.
0: And the thing that makes a wave look like a particle, that's known as the observation effect, observer effect. I mean, what is the impact of that and why is it so important? Well, these days, you know, we
1: teach our students. If you're, I'm at Caltech, if you're taking an undergraduate quantum mechanics course at Caltech, we say there's something called the wave function. Don't think of the electron as a point, think of it as a wave and it's spread out inside an atom. There's no such thing as where the electron is, it's spread out in sort of some profile. But then, when you look at it, when you send an electron through a detector, it leaves a track, just like a particle moving in a line. So, what we teach our students is that when you look at that wave, it collapses. You never see the wave. The wave is what the electron is when you're not looking at it. When you look at it, the wave suddenly localizes to some location. You can't predict where it will be. You could say it's more probable to be here than somewhere else, but there's some inherent randomness there. And worst of all, if someone in the back raises their hand and says, well, what do you mean, look at it? <laughs> what is the technical definition of measure or observe in this context? They're told to leave the room. You know, there, there's no good answer to that in modern physics. And so this purports to be our deepest understanding of how nature works, yet there are ideas like measurement and observation that don't seem like they should be playing a fundamental role in how nature works.
0: I mean if I was that annoying student and I stayed in the room the question I'd probably ask you is does it matter if that it's a human eye if the observer is conscious if a, if the a camera is looking if a piece yeah. of equipment is looking i mean what if you're short
1: sighted you yeah, like, I, I mean none of these are answered you're just not supposed to ask those questions and that's fine as long as you're in a regime where it's clear when you're not observing it or when you are, right? Like you have an apparatus and you've turned it on or you haven't turned it on, okay? That much is clear. But one of the reasons why people are revisiting the fundamental nature of quantum mechanics is that these days we're building quantum computers, we're doing physics at the nanoscale, we're pushing things around at the level where quantum
0: mechanics really becomes relevant. So I guess then the question is, how do we deal with the fact that what we see isn't Really, reality. Well, people like
1: Einstein and Schrödinger, who invented the Schrödinger equation of quantum mechanics, they had the same question. They were like, "How? What are we supposed to say about these things?" And other people, like Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, said, "Look, just don't worry about it. Just move on. Do your calculations. Build things. Build bombs. Build materials. Build lasers. Quantum mechanics is really, really good at explaining what we see." but it doesn't quite answer those detailed questions about what it means to look at something. So the best we can do according to the textbook interpretation is just to not ask that question. Now There have been some plucky individualists who have said, no, we have to do better. They have tried to develop more complete, rigorous, formulated theories of quantum mechanics. And the, these theories are given the name interpretations, but they're really not. They're separate, distinct physical theories that often make different experimental predictions. And the problem is that all of them fit into the framework of quantum mechanics at the level that we've been able to do the experiments so far. So there's different physical theories that could be right. We don't know which of them any
0: which of them, if any, actually is right. And we're going to explore some of those theories in a second, but quantum mechanics has been described as spooky. It's been described as weird. It's been described as mysterious and baffling. I just wonder what's your favorite adjective to describe
1: <laughs> quantum mechanics? It's a weird thing because the, the example I'd like to use, or the metaphor I like to use, is the fable of the fox and the grapes. I don't know if you know this one, but Aesop's fables, you know, the fox sees a bunch of grapes up there and the grapes look really juicy and yummy and the fox jumps up to get the grapes, but the grapes are just out of reach. Fox can't get them. So the fox says to himself, you know what? I never wanted those grapes anyway. They're probably sour. And that's how physicists feel about understanding quantum mechanics. It's not just that they don't understand it. They've convinced themselves they never wanted to understand it, that understanding quantum mechanics is somehow bad or wrong. And I think this is the origin of all the fact that when you read a quantum mechanics book at the popular level, it's emphasizing that it's mysterious and spooky and mystical and impossible to understand. And so what I want to do is just move entirely in the other direction. I want to say, actually, it's physics. It's not magic. It's not mystery. It's completely understandable. We might not understand it yet, but it is not fundamentally
0: mysterious. The, the thing I struggle with is that even though quantum mechanics is necessarily necessary in, in modern physics and in modern life, how... Are we able to make use of it without understanding it? Yeah,
1: no, that's a great question. But then again, think about your cell phone. Okay? You can use your cell phone. You can take pictures. You can send email. You can even call people on the phone. You can't, I don't know, maybe you can, but I can't build one from scratch, right? I don't know what's going on inside the cell phone. So we, there's plenty of examples where you can use something, whether it's a cell phone or a car or whatever, without knowing the details about how it operates. Now, scientists are supposed to have higher aspirations than that. They really want to understand how things operate. But right now, quantum mechanics is like your
0: cell phone. We can use it without really knowing what's going on inside. Is there something oddly innately human about that, to be able to use something but not understand it?
1: You know, it's a necessary first step. This is not like the the founders of quantum mechanics were wrong about quantum mechanics. It's just they sort of gave up too soon in trying to understand it. We, you know, we put models together that are kind of kludgy and don't really work, and we hope to build them into lean mean scientific machines. And with quantum mechanics, that program was never
0: quite complete. Now you spoke briefly about this this thing called the wave function, but another part of the quantum theory is is the Schrodinger equation. That's so right. how do those two things work together to give us quantum theory? Well it's very much like in the old days of Newton.
1: You would tell me if there is you know, a ball moving through the air, you tell me where it is and how fast it's moving. And then Newton give you gives you an equation from which you can predict the entire trajectory. So the Schrodinger equation is the equation from which, if you give me the wave function, I can predict how it will evolve in time. I can predict how electrons will evolve moving through the universe, how things interact and become entangled, which is an important quantum phenomenon. The Schrodinger equation is the single equation that tells us how all quantum mechanical systems behave.
0: With regards to this idea of quantum entanglement that you mentioned briefly, you've got two things happening. Superposition and quantum entanglement. So those two are key to understanding this thing called quantum theory. I mean, firstly, what's the difference between those two and why are they so important? Yeah, they're very different. So superposition
1: only is a word because of this weird difference between what the system is when you're not looking at it and when you are. So if it weren't for measurement, you would say the electron is a wave and you would stop. That would be that would be it and like we know how to deal with waves, electromagnetic waves, or light and things like that. We're fine. But then when you look at it you don't see the wave, you see it located at some position. So what you say to yourself is, okay, I can relate those two things to each other, what the electron is and what I see, by saying that I will think of this wave as a superposition, a combination of every possible location the electron could be at. And to each possible location, I assign a little bit of a number that says, what's the probability I'm going to observe it there. So, to say that an electron is in a superposition of different places, different locations it can be observed, is just a fancy way of saying it's a wave. Okay? Entanglement comes in when you have more than one system, like when you have two electrons or three electrons. Because in classical mechanics, according to Isaac Newton, if you have two particles, you just give me the state of one particle and what it's doing, and then you give me the state of the other particle and what it's doing. They're separate in some sense. In quantum mechanics, it turns out that there's not a wave function for particle number one and a wave function for particle number two. There's one wave function for the combined system of both of them. So It might be that you don't know what exactly you will observe when you look at particle one or particle two, but you know that when you observe a certain feature of particle one, you instantly know what particle two is doing. Mm. That's entanglement, that there's a relationship between the possible observational outcomes of all the different subsystems of the universe.
0: So, firstly, on entanglement, I mean, is there a possibility that we might actually be able to use this, this weird quirk of quantum entanglement for the development of technology or quantum computers?
1: Absolutely. It's absolutely at the heart of quantum computers. I thought you were going to ask, can we use it to send signals faster than light? Ah. Because or teleportation. You, yeah, or something like that. So the answer yes is no to those things. Right, okay. But no, absolutely, there's a lot of richness that gets involved. Uh, not just quantum computers, but quantum encryption, quantum money is a thing, right? You want to make money that no one else can duplicate. Quantum entanglement is your is your boy.
0: That sounds, uh, that sounds a little dangerous. Then. It sounds like <laughs> the next hype after blockchain or, or, or yep. Bitcoin. You go one step further with this whole thing around the wave function. You say that the whole world Is a wave function. So, can you just drill into that a little bit more just to help me to understand that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a natural road to walk down. Once you realize that when you have two electrons, there's still only one wave function, you want to say, well, okay, what if I have three electrons? Guess what? There's only one wave function because there's only one wave function for the entire universe. Hugh Everett, who as a graduate student invented the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, I think was the first to use this phrase. He called it the universal wave function. These days, following Stephen Hawking, we call it the wave function of the universe. But still, any version of quantum mechanics has it. There is only one wave function for every physical system that exists.
0: So, I want to talk about Everett's theory or the multi world theory, because really that's at the crux of your new book. Yes. Yeah. It's at the crux of something it's a sales
1: pitch for many deeply. Worlds,
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the core of something deeply hidden. I mean, In the most simplest terms possible, and I guess you've just written 350 pages on it, so it's unfair to ask, but what is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics?
1: Well, basically, the one way to think about it is Everett looked at the rules of quantum mechanics, which say, okay, there are wave functions, there's a Schrodinger equation, that kind of makes sense. But then there's these extra rules about measurement and observation. Like when you measure something, the wave function collapses. You can't predict when it will collapse. After it collapses, it's in a certain state. And Everett said, what if we just erase all the rules we didn't like? (laughs) What if we just had a wave function that obeyed the Schrodinger equation? And the secret to doing that in a sensible way is to realize that it's not that the electron is a quantum system, but you, the observer, are a classical system. You're made of atoms. Atoms obey the rules of quantum mechanics. You're part of the wave function of the universe. And what he says, if you just put you into the Schrodinger equation along with the electron, then all the mysteries about measurement and observation disappear. You're a physical system. The electron is a physical system. You interact with each other. And rather than talking nonsense about measurement, what you should do is solve the Schrodinger equation and see see what happens to you and the electron. And the answer is you and the electron become entangled. And rather than the electron being all spread out and you seeing it somewhere, there's part of the wave function that says the electron was there and you saw it there. There's another part of the, ele- of the wave function that says the electron was over here and you saw it over here for all of the different possibilities. And Everett says, just accept that. Just lean in just believe what the equation is trying to tell you. But rather than saying, well, I've never been in a superposition. I don't know what that feels like. You should recognize that all of these different possibilities define different worlds. And so it's the worlds were always there inside the wave function. Everett's just saying, and they exist, and that's okay.
0: So, does that mean it's impossible as a human subject, as a human being, to have an objective view on what reality is? It says that the reality we experience is a tiny, infinitesimal
1: slice of the whole shebang. Yeah. Which should be the least surprising thing in the world. I mean, that's the history of science since Copernicus is telling us that we are less and less important to the universe than we like to
0: think. Now, there's a reason why you like many worlds theory so much, and it's simply because it—I mean, it—it works. It works. Uh, it works you- it's mathematically far and away the simplest
1: version of quantum mechanics. So, it's—you know—I get it why people resist it because it seems to imply the existence of much, much more than we see. The reason why you should like it is because it's the simplest explanation of what we do see and the question is, are you up to the task of accepting all the implications even though you don't see them directly? And maybe you shouldn't, like maybe I'm wrong and maybe there's something new in physics that gets rid of the other worlds. The worlds are there in the wave function. And Everett says, just accept them, it's okay. Other people are like, nope, I'm going to erase them somehow, I'm going to mess with
0: the laws of physics to get rid of these worlds. I just don't think that's necessary. Are there other contenders to the many worlds theory? Are there other possibilities for what could be happening here?
1: There are. There's sort of two broad classes of alternatives. One are hidden variable theories. Uh, sometimes called pilot wave theories, and there you take the wave function and the Schrodinger equation but you add something extra to it. The thing you add to it is roughly a finger that points at one part of the wave function and says, this is the reality, right? So there's the wave function describing all these worlds, but there's also a little pointer that says, and this is the real one where we live, okay? So it kind of makes you feel better about, I don't need to take seriously all those other worlds. But uh, someone who likes many worlds would say it's just many worlds in denial. (laughs) It's just like trying to avoid accepting what what the equations predict. The other set of contenders actually change the equation, the Schrodinger equation. The Schrodinger equation, again, unambiguously says these worlds come into existence. So Other contenders say, but the Schrodinger equation isn't always obeyed. Occasionally the wave function sort of gathers itself up and picks out one of the worlds.
0: This whole idea of there being many, many worlds, is that similar to the idea of the cosmological multiverse or is that completely a different thing? It's actually completely a different thing. I mean, the words sound relatively similar, but I
1: would argue that despite the fact that it's way more mind bendy and profound, (laughs) the cosmological sorry the the quantum many worlds are also much more likely to be there so the cosmological multiverse is really just the idea that if you go very very far away out there in space so far away that it's beyond what we can possibly see given the speed of light as a speed limit maybe there are regions of of the universe where things are very very different so uh, the laws of physics could be different the particles even the number of dimensions of space could be different and so we group regions where things are relatively similar to each other and call that a universe. Maybe there's many different universes stitched together within space. Okay? Is that reality or not? I have no idea. Like maybe there's, there's good theories that predict that the world is like that. There are other good theories that predict it's not. At the present state of the art, we have no way of knowing. Many worlds is much more profound because it, it means that literally right here in this room, as we're speaking, the universe is being duplicated into many, many different copies. Um, but it's also there's a lot more evidence for it. I mean, it just explains data that we have actually collected.
0: The other thing that it reminds me of when you say many worlds is the idea of parallel worlds. Is, is that again, is that similar, or is that again, something completely different? Parallel worlds is just a more vague
1: term, so yes, it's actually more similar in the sense that when people want to know where are these worlds located, there's no answer to that question. They're not located in a place. You should think of space being part of each universe, not each universe having a location in some big space. So the best way to think of all these multiple worlds is as literally simultaneously existing, essentially parallel copies of
0: reality. I always thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I always thought parallel worlds is something to do with B-theory of time. So B-theory of time where the yeah. past, present, and future is happening simultaneously right now, it holds true that to some extent that you know, everything must be happening in parallel.
1: <laughs> well, it's a little bit trickier than that and it's a whole other discussion I'd love to have. But it's not that past, present, and future are existing simultaneously, it's that they equally well exist. When you use the word simultaneous, you're undoing the words past, present, and future, right? Simultaneous means at the same moment of time. And I think that the B theory simply accepts the equal reality of past, present, and future without saying at the same time.
0: Do you think it's something to do with human subjectivity, though?
1: Yeah, humans are terrible at this because, of course, we developed the English language long before we developed relativity or quantum mechanics, right? And so we nevertheless try to force these highfalutin, crazy physics ideas into the everyday language that we're equipped with, and we come up a little bit short sometimes in understanding the translation.
0: So, so very simply then, so multiverses—they're far away. Yeah and many worlds are here right now quite possibly happening in this
1: space. That's right. Parallel.
0: So are these new worlds created by the observation or did they already pre-exist? That's the tricky thing that I'm trying to get my head around.
1: I think it's closer to saying that they already existed because it's not that you take the universe and literally duplicate it like putting it in a Xerox copier and making another copy of it. It's more like the universe had a certain thickness and you divided it. It's more like the universe subdivided and differentiated itself. Into two bits of it, where now it's a slight divergence. It used to be one big thick universe where everything was the same, and now it's two slightly different universes where here an atom decayed and here it did not.
0: It feels like we've almost covered off this, this idea, and it just feels the way you talk about it, it just feels so it feels so simple. It feels so normal in many ways. I mean, have you found what sort of responses have you found to this book? where what you're saying feels very matter of fact. Yeah, I
1: think that one of the differences between my book and previous ones is that I don't try to highlight the weirdness of quantum mechanics. I try to say, look, here's an attempt to make it actually make sense. It might not be the right attempt. Like, it might turn out 20 years from now, we learn better, okay, that's fine. But much more important to me is that it makes sense at the end of the day, that we can make sense of it. And I think that people are sympathetic to that point of view. I think the general idea that we should not just take quantum mechanics as already a success and be satisfied with it is catching on. More and more people want to do a little bit better.
0: I mean, the, the issue I had is when I, in a wonderful book, but the issue I had is when I closed the book, I went, so what does this mean for me in mm-hmm. this present world right now? And I just wonder how are people coming to terms with this idea that there could be a proliferation of other, other realities?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not something which is going to lead to some technological improvement, right? You're not going to get a multiverse smartphone or anything like that, right? You're not going to cure malaria, Um, but it is. I I just try to be honest about it and say, look, we're human beings. We're curious. We want to understand the fundamental nature of reality. And of all people. Physicists should be most invested in understanding the fundamental nature of reality. And the prospect that many worlds helps us do that is its own justification, as far as I'm concerned. I also try to make the case in the book that certain questions within physics, like reconciling gravity and quantum mechanics, become much easier when you take the many worlds perspective. So I think it is also helpful in the practice of physics as well as just scratching a curiosity itch, Uh, but mostly it's there because we want to understand things better.
0: I mean gravity is the elephant in the room, isn't it really? Can you explain why and how it comes to help understand this this tricky thing called gravity that we we don't quite understand, but we know at least it's keeping us here on this planet? Right. We know the gravity is there. Einstein gave us
1: a very successful theory of gravity in the form of general relativity, where he says that space and time are part of a four-dimensional space-time. That spacetime is curved, has a life of its own, and that curvature manifests itself as gravity. Now, if you think about quantum mechanics, which says the electron is not a location in space at a point, it's sort of spread out, and you say, how do you fit gravity into that picture? Well, gravity, if, if, if the way the universe could be curved, if the way that space-time could have a geometry, is a quantum reality, that means it's in a superposition of all the different possible ways that space time could be curved. And that means it's very hard to even indicate a single point and say, that's where I saw the electron. Because once you have different parts of the universe with different geometries, they don't match up in any simple way. So there are both conceptual and technical difficulties in fitting gravity into the framework of quantum mechanics.
0: And again, when you describe it, it feels so. Simple, but I kind of go back to that feeling, what that means for me personally as a human being. If there's multi-worlds and I'm making different decisions in all these worlds, I mean, how does that change how I act personally or ethically yeah. in the world that I'm living right now?
1: It's a good question, and I think that I have a favorite answer, but I, I actually I'm, I'm happy to admit that we should think about this harder than we have so far. So let's imagine, for example, that you are a utilitarian. You thought the greatest good for the greatest number, okay. And furthermore, you thought that overall, the existence of human beings was a good, right? You know, it's nice to have human beings around. Experience like sometimes things are sad, but overall, it's a net good, okay you might think that your moral imperative was to go into your basement and branch the wave function of the universe as quickly as possible, creating all these new universes with a bunch of more people in them, right? Because that would increase the net utility of the universe. Even though nobody outside your basement would have any idea you were doing this. So I think that rests on a mistake. I think that's not the moral imperative because, again, the universe has a thickness and you're making it thinner and thinner and thinner. And when you duplicate the number of universes, but each universe is less thick, so it has less there to it, you shouldn't count that as increasing the utility of the universe. If no one in the universe knows you've done anything, you shouldn't get any moral credit for doing that. And when you take that attitude seriously, what you conclude is that essentially, up to some bizarre counterexamples, you should act within this Everettian multiverse exactly the way you think you should act in a Universe governed by the rules of quantum mechanics that were given to us by Niels Bohr in the nineteen twenties. So
0: I can't argue that I've paid my taxes in another world, and does not help. Does not no, work. Sorry. I mean, there Would is love to be able to say that, <laughs> but there is still something. There's something oddly comforting about the idea of there being multiple U's do you think the reason why this is so popular, this, this theory is so popular, is because there is something innately comforting about the theory? No,
1: because it's not that popular. I think there's something innately disconcerting about the idea that there's all these other copies of me slightly different, right? And I think the crucial, crucial thing that if you want to accept many worlds and make sense of it is to understand that the worlds are not created equal. So yes, there are other worlds where some version of you, not you because you're in this world, there's a different person out there just like identical twins are not the same person even though they came from the same starting point. Uh, there's a person that, uh, that started as you but is now somewhat different that something wonderful happened to that would be very unlikely by conventional ways of saying it. You won the lottery or you know, whatever. But it matters that the probability of that is very small in the conventional way of thinking of it. It's not that you and the other version of you are sort of just, there's two of you, so it's 50-50. It
0: could have been either way, right? The probabilities really make a difference. So you don't subscribe to the conspiracy that when we switched on the Hadron Collider, the world started to get weird and we jumped into another world? No, that's compelling for various reasons, but yes, I do not think that's fair. It's not true. I guess the wonderful thing about reading the book, the wonderful thing about listening to you now is you sound more like a philosopher than you do a physicist. And I just wonder, are philosophers and physicists, are they strange bedfellows or is there a, a complementarity that they need to help understand these more complicated, weird things about reality?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a difference, and most of physics gets along perfectly fine without anything ph- philosophical being involved, right? If you want to calculate the rate of decay of a certain atomic nucleus, philosophers are not going to be of any help to you, right? Okay, if you want to know how a galaxy formed, just do your calculation. But there are certain areas of physics where you bump right up into philosophy problems. Quantum mechanics is an obvious example, but also things like the origin of the universe or why the past is different from the future. And Many modern philosophers of science got PhDs in physics before switching into philosophy because they realised that the questions they were interested in would never get them a
0: job in a physics department. Is there a weird kind of taboo, perhaps, about talking about quantum mechanics in the physics department?
1: There absolutely is. I think it's going away. I'd like to be optimistic about the rate of change. But there's still plenty of plenty of people who, if you say, I'm interested in the foundations of quantum mechanics, they will say, oh, it's too bad you're not doing physics anymore.
0: <laughs> I mean, why,
1: is it such a, why do you think it's such a controversial field? There's a bunch of reasons. I mean, there was a bad old days when thinking about the foundations of quantum mechanics was something one did after the serious work was done. And, you know, you came up with what were called interpretations, just a bunch of words like interpreting a novel or a painting or something like that. And it didn't seem to have any practical benefit when it came to calculating the cross section for a certain nuclear reaction or, you know, two particles bumping into each other or anything else that we could really help us understand the observations that we made in our telescopes and our particle accelerators. So, I think that it got a bad reputation for that reason and the fact that these days we have real physical theories that potentially make very different experimental predictions has sort of gone under the radar and most physicists don't even know that. So, that's part of the of
0: the hope is that we can spread the word this is actually really physics that's being done here. Is, is the problem that we just don't see the practical application of this right now.
1: Well, the word "practical" means something very different to a working physicist than a person on the street. Like practical might mean you can calculate you know the temperature at which a certain substance goes from being solid to liquid, okay? And as far as those things are concerned, it's very practical to a physicist. No one else cares. The interpretation or the formulation of quantum mechanics doesn't help that much. It might help, as we said, with gravity, and that would be enough to get physicists very excited about it. That turned out to
0: be true. So in a funny sort of way, is, is what you're doing, Sean, is it propaganda? Are you trying to make quantum theory as interesting and exciting to the general public as possible?
1: There's definitely a marketing aspect to it, which is only fair because Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, et cetera, had a marketing campaign in the 20s and 30s against people like Einstein and Schrodinger and Bohr and his friends won the marketing battle. They convinced both physicists and the general public that quantum mechanics was fine, let's move on to other things. And so I'm trying to counter-program that.
0: That's great, but sometimes is there a danger to how the public may misunderstand things like quantum mechanics? I know the Schrodinger cat experiment has entered sort of popular consciousness and culture, but it's often been sort of (laughs) twisted... (laughs) In ways that are not how it was originally formulated, I read it in the book that it was a joke originally. Yeah.
1: Well, no one in the popular culture has ever misunderstood anything I've said about quantum mechanics, no. so you know I hope to do better than that. But in fact, I think it's the other way around. I think that a lot of the misunderstandings of quantum mechanics have been allowed to flourish precisely because physicists have not taken seriously, trying to get to the bottom of it. you know that gives room for people to impose their views on it, like maybe my conscious perception is bringing the world into existence just by looking at it right and I think that once you are able to think more carefully about the foundations of quantum mechanics and go, look, you know honestly there is an equation and the world obeys the equation and that's really what it is and there's nothing about you perceiving things your consciousness or anything that actually will make it more in accordance the popular view with the physical reality
0: but then you could counter argue that if you're saying that humans are a quantum system in their own right then surely consciousness in some way shape or form must come in to play so how do we deal with this consciousness problem
1: well, I think the consciousness comes out of the physical behavior of the world. Uh, I, I think the consciousness exists. There it is, it's real, but it's not one of the ingredients in the fundamental description of reality, right? Just like tables and chairs exist, but they're not there in the standard model of particle physics, they appear as useful approximations in some macroscopic observable regime, right? Consciousness, likewise. It's an emergent phenomenon out of the very complicated interactions of all these electrons obeying the Schrodinger equation.
0: But, but you could say without Sean's consciousness, we wouldn't have the understanding of quantum mechanics. So does it go the other way that, you know, we might not understand human consciousness without? quantum
1: no, mechanics i don't think so i mean i can say like without the table i would not have the support for my coffee cup but that doesn't mean the table plays some fundamental role you know maybe uh, the understanding of of this or that bit of quantum mechanics might be different but Consciousness comes after is is the important point I think you know consciousness is like wetness or tables or anything else that arises in our world and is very important and we should take it seriously but it's not bringing things into existence so consciousness doesn't create reality I don't think so (laughs) I mean this you knew I was going to say that I (laughs) knew you were going to say
0: but uh, partly because I wanted to talk just a little bit about what's been popularly known as quantum woo right because quantum has kind of captured the imagination of so many, and it feels like it's really captured the imagination of esoteric individuals or people in the new age or new age spiritualism. And I just wonder how you feel this idea of quantums being distorted or misrepresented. and, And why has there been this appropriation and then misrepresentation? I mean, what is it about quantum that makes it so appealing to those individuals? There is a joke called the law of conservation of mystery that
1: says, you know, consciousness is mysterious and quantum mechanics is mysterious, so they must be related somehow, right? But it's just a joke. It's not actually true. When I wrote my book one of the research projects I did was to go to Amazon.com and type the word quantum into the search engine and just look for all the different titles of books involving quantum. So yes, you get quantum therapy, quantum leadership, quantum healing, quantum prayer, quantum touch. No equations in any of these books. It's weird, right? I think that our misunderstanding of quantum mechanics has allowed these to flourish and the way that they flourish is as a wish fulfillment kind of fantasy. You know. The fact that the world obeys the laws of physics has always been a bit of a downer. It it limits what we can do. I cannot use my brain power to lift something up across the room because the laws of physics don't let me do that. Not in this world. Not in this world. Not in the world that obeys the laws of physics as we know them. But if you think that the act of observation of a quantum system is a crucially foundational part of the definition of what it means to be a quantum system then it's a short step to saying, well, observation, okay, perception, okay, consciousness. And my consciousness is playing a role in the fundamental laws of physics. It's bringing that observational outcome into existence. I think that's false, but it's not crazy talk if if you don't do a better job. So I can't make a decision and branch the waveform? Not by making a decision. It's the other way around. It's the the electrons in your brain that are making the decisions, not you pushing around the electron.
0: So in your opinion, the world. Probably isn't magic the, o-
1: the world obeys the schrodinger equation that 's a little bit of
0: magic, kind of a sense, but it's still obeying the equation i mean you you've have a highly popular uh, blog, and one of the blog posts is this idea that there there is no magic, and for someone who's so enthusiastic about the, all the mysteries of the world and trying to yeah. solve those mysteries <laughs> of the world, it, it just feels <laughs> almost disappointing in some ways that you don't believe there might be a little bit of magic, something that's still unknowable, something that Constantly remain mysterious to human beings. That's right. I do have a blog post that I'm, I'm very happy with called The World
1: is Not Magic for exactly that reason. And I think that I like it so much better that way. You know, I, I like the idea because it would be one thing if we understood the wor- world perfectly right like if we had the theory of everything and we had all the information about the world i think this is never going to happen we're never going to get all the information about the world where would we fit it you know the world is a very big place so there will always be things we don't understand but in the in the real world today there's even features of how the world behaves that we don't understand so there are puzzles there are mysteries but there answerable puzzles. They're solvable mysteries. I think that's far more interesting.
0: Do you think at the end of the day it's, it's a limitation of, of human evolution, human biology, and therefore human consciousness that means we're constantly going to have a degree of uh, limit to our understanding? No,
1: I do not. I mean there's a limit to our understanding literally because our brains are only so big okay so we will there's this thought experiment called Laplace's demon from Pierre Simon Laplace in the year 1800 where he didn't know about quantum mechanics he was still thinking in a Newtonian framework but he said if you knew the position and velocity of literally every bit of matter in the universe this vast intelligence could predict exactly the future and retrodict the past now Laplace knew perfectly well, no one will ever have this information. Like We just literally can't store that much information, so it was just a thought experiment. But the laws, the dynamical equations that the universe obeys, as far as I can tell, should be perfectly knowable. Right? The detailed information about which world we live in, we might never know, but the rules that that world obeys, I don't see any obstacle to us figuring them out.
0: The fact that we're stuck in this human body and stuck with this human brain doesn't that feel like there's still that limit to understanding to understanding the world objectively we're constantly and always going to be this human subject with human consciousness and therefore all of our theories about what reality is are going to be human based they are but i do
1: think that we have you know undergone A tipping point, a phase transition. Once we figured out sort of a hypothetical deductive method, right, you come up with a bunch of ideas about the way the world could be, and you do experiments and collect data to figure out which one is right. So, circa Francis Bacon, 1600s, or something like that. We have just been on a rocketing trajectory of learning more and more about the world at an incredibly rapid rate. If you think about 100 years ago, we didn't know the universe was expanding. We didn't even know that there were other galaxies outside our own. We didn't know about nuclear physics or anything like that. We didn't know about quarks or neutrinos. The amount that we've learned in 100 years is flabbergasting and 100 years is not a long period of time. So if you're saying well like you know in the last 10 minutes I haven't learned anything profound about the universe that's a little bit impatient. I would say not that we're uh, coming up short in our attempts to understand things, but we've been going so fast that it's almost too
0: good to be true. I wonder if there's something that's culturally that's changed. It has been 100 years, almost It was 1900, I think, when these ideas were first started, proposed, started to be proposed, and it almost took a hundred years for us to be comfortable with the idea of quantum. And I just wonder if that's not to do with physics or science, but it's to do with society and culture. When we live in a world that is comfortable with the idea of post-truth, that there is (laughs) another form of political reality then the idea that there's another world, seems quite normal to the general public?
1: So I actually don't think that. I think that that's, you know, it's a tempting hypothesis and maybe I'm wrong. So you could test it using data. I think it's, but there are, there's definitely a relationship between what's happening in the world and in culture and how scientists think, you know, it can be a stronger relationship, but sometimes in a weaker relationship. But the huge thing that mattered, if you think that, you know, sure, we started down the road of quantum mechanics in 1900, but we kind of put into its final form in the late 1920s. Okay, and this was a bunch of people, largely German, Danish, French, English. And a few years later, they were at war. Okay, and literally, people like Einstein and Schrodinger had to flee their home countries. And whereas in the 20s, these people would just get together over coffee and hash things out they were left you know sending letters across the atlantic ocean to each other and the whole discourse slowed down and then the brightest young minds were told you know what we really need are some weapons we need to some build some bombs here so their attention was distracted away from the fundamental questions of quantum mechanics so i think there's no doubt That what was going on in the world had a big impact on the history of physics in the twentieth century.
0: Is is there a parallel between what was happening in the nineteen twenties and now what's happening in the twenty twenties? Are we again in this? I mean, it's faster communication, it's email that you're sending across the world. But are we in this period of sort of pastorally gathering our information on quantum before we make the next step? I think that it's a fascinating idea. I would love to. It's almost.
1: It seems almost impossible to get an accurate idea when you're living in the moment of how recent changes in culture are affecting how we're thinking scientifically. But the fact that there are not just TV shows but social media and podcasts and physicists can share their papers electronically very, very easily. I don't need to necessarily fly to another country to hear a talk. I can see the video of the talk and things like that. This is absolutely changing the way that scientific communication happens. Whether or not that's changing the science that's being done, I would say probably, but
0: I'm but I'm not going to venture an actual guess as to what specifically is going on there. Well, I, I just wonder again culturally, it's not just uh, it's not just the way in which we communicate, but it's the things that we see, the things that we yeah. watch, the things that we're you know, receiving in terms of media, and in, in the same way that sort of the Matrix films of 1999 made people comfortable with the idea that we live in a simulation and. Avatar made in 2009, which was 10 years later, oddly enough, made us comfortable <laughs> with the idea of biotechnology or inhibiting some form of biotechnology, and Pokemon made us comfortable with Chimeras. I just wonder, are things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe doing wonders for quantum physicists? I would like to think
1: that I've uh, been a consultant on some of the Marvel movies. Actually, uh, the time travel in Avengers: Endgame uh, I influenced in interesting ways. And you know, I, I love the Marvel movies. And my friend Spiros Mikulakis, uh was the one who introduced the phrase "the quantum realm" into the Marvel universe. He's a physicist at Caltech, and. Uh, They're not documentaries. I hate to disillusion anyone out there. They're not even hard science fiction, but they can nevertheless be inspirational. They can get people thinking. Like they're not accurate or true, but you know, the original Iron Man movie I loved, not because. A guy in a cave in the middle of nowhere could build a suit and fly away, but because Tony Stark did act like a scientist, you know, he did experiments. He failed. He spent a lot of time in the lab. You know, the scientific method, in some artistic way, was on display in that movie. You're not saying you're Iron Man,
0: though. I'm not saying that I'm Iron Man. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I wanted to touch on that a little bit more because it'd be um, it'd be silly of me not to, but. So in Endgame, yep. the, the thing yes. about time travel and the way in which they reconceptualized time travel in Avengers Endgame versus how we've seen it in Back to the Future, right. were you partly responsible for that? That there was going to be this splitting off of different worlds that would be created where Captain America can live quite comfortably within this world and right. we are creating these loops? So I just wonder if you could explain some of the work that you did do on the Marvel series. I did.
1: So, you know, the thing that I've, uh, as a physicist, I've worked on time travel, whether it's possible within general relativity and things like that. So, I have thoughts on what is good and bad time travel. And when I consulted with the Russell brothers and the writers on Endgame, you know, they already knew they wanted to do time travel. So, they already knew that they hadn't even filmed the first movie yet, Infinity War, but they knew that it was going to end in disaster and they are going to have to go back in time to fix it. So they wouldn't know how that would work. And I tried to make the case that the most important thing to me about time travel is you can visit the past, but you can't change it because it has already happened. Um, And in fact, someone in the room, when we're having that discussion, said, do you mean to tell me that Back to the Future is just bullshit? And that line appeared in the movie and you know Paul Rudd as Ant-Man said exactly that line. And so we did go into an, uh, a more elaborate scheme where there was quantum mechanics and branching worlds and different possibilities. But I was advocating for keeping it relatively simple and you know sticking to one timeline if at all possible. And I think that in the movie, you know, again, it's not a documentary. They don't need to they're not subject to peer review, for example, but they struck kind of a compromise where they talk about different timelines, but the actual action that you see in the movie is compatible with just a single universe. With yeah, Captain America going back in time and having a nice love life with Peggy, so that was good.
0: I mean, have there have there been any really good examples of science fiction that you've seen either novels or short fiction? or even in the movies they have really done well in understanding this quantum weirdness, this quantum mechanics? Quantum mechanics is probably the hardest
1: thing to get uh, accurately portrayed in movies or even in novels. Um, Ted Chiang is a very uh, accomplished science fiction author who has a new collection of short stories. Everyone tells me that some of them are about many worlds quantum mechanics and they're great, but I will confess I have not yet read them. Uh, but I'm sure that he knows what he's doing. It's, it's you know a little bit bittersweet because quantum mechanics gives you this fantastic idea that every time we measure a quantum system, the world branches. But then the people in one branch can't talk to the people in the other branch, which is why we don't have these ethical implications. But also makes it a much less interesting story to tell if you can't talk to each other. If you can't say, "Well, okay, I had pizza. What did you have, and was that the right decision?"
0: I mean, all this—the way in which you talk about this stuff and the and the sorts of ideas that you're espousing and sharing—that when I first read them, they were so surprising to me. And I just wonder, what was the last thing that surprised you? Here's something: uh, energy is conserved.
1: This is something that we think is true in the world, right? Now, in many worlds, well, in quantum mechanics, is it still true that energy is conserved in quantum mechanics? Uh, Remember, we said that there are sort of different formulations of quantum mechanics, many worlds, and these spontaneous collapsing theories, and these hidden variable theories. So in the spontaneous collapsing theories, energy is just not conserved. And actually, that gives you a handle to do experiments looking for uh, evidence of these theories. But I got to worry to think about many worlds, and I realized that In many worlds, the energy that is conserved is spread out over all the worlds. So if you had a god's eye view and could see all the worlds at once, you would think that energy is conserved. But in any one world, it need not look like that. So you might be able to do an experiment in a lab here on Earth that would show energy either increasing or decreasing overall because of quantum effects. It's basically a total amount of energy being shared unequally between the different worlds. Uh, That was a surprise to me, but
0: I think it might be right. And What does that mean for our conception of reality, I guess?
1: It just means that uh, instead of energy being completely constant, it sort of you know will vibrate up and down a little bit. It doesn't mean anything you know for your digestion or your diet or anything like that, but it's
0: an important part of thinking about how reality works. Now what was so lovely in the book is that you sort of map the history of scientific progress, and the the thing that was really obvious, what seemed really obvious to me is what was key to that scientific progress was generations, mm. new generations of scientists coming in yeah. coming up with new theories, challenging previous generations and I just wonder what do you hope for the next generation of scientists? what do you hope that they might discover in the next say ten years right i mean there's an old, another old joke
1: about how science progresses funeral by funeral, <laughs> but I think that uh you're exactly right and this idea that when we teach quantum mechanics to students there's a bit of a then a miracle occurs step when you do a measurement is something that the younger generation is a little bit less willing to shut up and put up with than the older generations were and you know partly this is because of bad news because we haven't had a real revolution in fundamental physics in recent years right we haven't been surprised by new discoveries in our telescopes or our microscopes or whatever. We have theories that fit the data and they fit the data for decades now. Uh, So we can go back and think about the foundations a little bit more carefully. But look, there's no... I can be very honest about the fact that when I write a book, like Something Deeply Hidden, part of the audience is just people on the street who are interested in physics. Part of the audience is my professional colleagues who might want to know a little bit more about this particular point of view. But a big part of the audience is young people who haven't been... haven't settled into a particular viewpoint on these things yet. And I want them, whether or not they agree with my viewpoint, I want them to not sit quietly in their quantum classes. So I want a high school student to read my book, know that this set of issues exists. And so when they first are exposed to them at a technical level, they really think as deeply as they can about them.
0: I I mean, I guess being comfortable with some things being unknowable is almost as Human is wanting to find an answer to everything. I just wonder, I mean, how has an understanding of quantum mechanics and, and dealing with these questions of what is knowable and what is unknowable taught you about what it means to be human?
1: You know, I th- again, I don't like the word unknowable. I do think that uh, if the laws of physics are knowable, then I'll be happy even if I can't know what's going on in all the other universes, right? But what it tells me about what it means to be human is two things. Number one, we're really tiny. Right? Uh, Copernicus said we're not at the center of the universe. Uh, Giordano Bruno and then later Edwin Hubble said our galaxy is just one of, you know, there's a lot of stars and a lot of galaxies out there. And now the many worlds of quantum mechanics say like all these other copies of me are out there that I can't talk to. And, And I, as science progresses, it discovers a bigger, bigger universe and I stay the same size, right? So relative to the universe, I seem to be shrinking and that's okay. That's one thing that we learn. The other thing that we learn is, is sort of in the opposite direction of the idea of unknowability it's that the very rules that govern not only tables and chairs and planets and, and stars, but people and the universe itself are knowable. Right? Like, I know that there's no experiment going to be done next year where we learn that people actually can do telekinesis to lift up coffee cups from across the room using just the powers of their minds, because we know what the mind is able to do. It still obeys the laws of physics. What we would like to know are questions like where did the universe come from? What happened at the Big Bang? There, we truly don't know. I'm very optimistic that it's knowable and therefore questions about the meaning of the existence
0: of the universe become a little bit more quantitative. We can, you know, put some meat on those bones. So still so much that we don't know that soon we may know. Sean Carroll, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you to Sean for sharing his thoughts on the mysteries of quantum physics. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Something Deeply Hidden, Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.